All right. Well, for those who are unaware of this, um, the last ministry role I had before I came here was over in the country town of Victoria of Wangaratta. And um, it was our first shot of being senior pastors before coming here as a practice run, before we got a chance to really, you know, get amongst you guys. And we'd enjoyed being in teams in large churches over that, uh, in previous years, but we went to very much be a solo pastor in a very um, walk alone sort of time there in a, in a country town there. It was quite, quite um, interesting to do that. And with all that trepidation, it felt like even the weather was conspiring against us as we made that move. You know, the very last day that of, of my time in Sydney, we, um, we, it was Christmas Day, we'd done a, a Christmas play, all the pastors do this drama on Christmas morning there, and, um, and after that, we jumped in a car, jumped in our Toyota that we just got rid of, and, and we drove down the Hume Highway to see family in Melbourne, and, and got to about Wallen, and we got hammered by hail. And we, it was bad. We, it did $8,000 damage to the Toyota Orion. Right? It was not a single panel, not a single trim was unscathed by that thing. Big hail like this, crazy. Anyway, we move into Wangaratta. We move into this rental property. And uh, it was 40 degrees when we moved all the furniture in. Um, but only about a month later, the autumn rains were starting to come into the town. And, and um, you may re- remember the NAB Cup uh, competition was doing uh, a few a series of matches in Wangaratta and, and St Kilda and, and the Bombers were going to play there one year and, and the Bombers ended up forfeiting because they couldn't land their plane anywhere near safely there. It was one of those really intense things. Insurance companies shut down all policies. Uh, you weren't allowed to get a new policy. There was fear of flooding and all this other stuff. It was a terrible time and while everybody's freaking out about this, We're thinking about our backyard and where the water would come up from the creek and that sort of thing, but instead, one almighty crash on on about 3 o'clock in the morning. Just the rain had gathered through some holes in the tiled roof and had congregated over the lounge room and just caved in the whole lounge. All the the plaster just... (laughs) It was a mess. Anyway, the carpets were soaked, had to be replaced. Walls were damaged, had to be replastered. There was a lot of repainting to do, a lot of drying out, a terrible smell of the place for about eight weeks. To make matters worse, the owners were actually not insured. They had a cover note that had expired. Oh, we'll get around to it. And, uh, but also with their, but because they had a cover note to go into the main insurance thing, they were having a hard time actually finding policies because of the rains. So there was all this big mess happening and, and the real estate agent wasn't very helpful. It was a terrible time. And strangely enough, it's not the first time I've actually had a roof cave in. Over in Perth, we had a rather expensive rental and, and one day I just noticed water accumulating in a light fitting in a bedroom. Perfect place to have it. It's, it's, like it's, a, it's a marriage made in heaven, right? Light, electricity, water. It's a, but... And, and I'm like, I'm telling the agent this, and they're going, oh, we'll get a sparky onto it. Yeah, no worries, no worries. Next thing you know, what turned out was that the hot water unit, the solar hot water unit was on the roof just above that. And there was an overflow pipe just sitting into the roof cavity for no apparent reason. And one day, just the roof caved in, and scalding hot water just started spewing into the room. 
Thankfully, nobody was in there. <laughs> now, we live in the mount. A place with even more wind and more rain than anywhere I've ever lived before. Perth included. Jen and I bought a renovator. And the first major rain we had went since moving into that place was the same weekend that Heather Packer was here and the foyer was leaking for a women's event. And you can imagine I was a little bit paranoid. Just all sorts of crazy. I'm trying to leave worship up here for, to help the, the ladies out and I'm like, oh, I hope the roof's okay at home, you know? <laughs> There's a, a lot of trust placed in the roof of a building. It does a lot to protect us. It takes a pounding from the elements. With good maintenance, it will last for life. The odd leak might happen, um, you know, but if we keep on top of those things, a roof will go for the life. It'll do, do its job for life. The roof also provides insulation for the energy that gets produced within as well. If I run the heater at home but don't have insulation, I'm going to waste a lot of energy because Jen likes a very warm room. So it makes sense that we have a habit, in the natural at least, of inspecting our roof both on the inside and the out. I have to say this, that after my multiple experiences of extreme water leakage, as well as the need for good, efficient heating in our crazy and expensive electricity setting, I now value a good quality, well-maintained and insulated roof. Now, it's my prayer this morning that as we go into this next month, you too will come to really value the roof, as it were, of your discipleship journey. For those newer or visiting or wondering what on earth I'm talking about here, we've been speaking all year round uh, uh, with this series titled Under Construction. And it has been based from the second letter written by the Apostle Peter. In the first chapter, he lays out a series of virtues. They begin with faith and they end with love. The middle ones can pretty much be read in any order, but we have taken them as written in the order they're presented and we're telling a visual story with this thing, using the model here to, to help us remember the points as we go along. And we're talking about our life being under construction. Now, by now we should have memorized all these things. I know Peter tested you last week. But I'm standing on a foundation which is made up of Faith, awesome. I'm leaning heavily on a framework, which is the virtue of goodness, yes. Okay, now goodness, when it is taking shape and formed and mature, that should lead us to a position of, well, knowledge. But before knowledge, when goodness is set and, 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 strike and strong, integrity, right? All right, okay. Then we go into knowledge, yes. All right, and, then, and knowledge leads to 
Wisdom, yes, very good. Okay, and then we have self-control. All right, self-control leads us to what? Yeah, it feeds into God, into perseverance. It does, it does. Self-control will lead us to some victories first. You'll know self-control is working when you're starting to get some victories in your life, when habits are starting to get defeated, when things are starting to, when, when different things in our life are just like, hey, I'm actually nailing some of this stuff now. All right, then it goes into perseverance, all right? And perseverance, from a scriptural perspective, should lead us to a place where our eternal outlook is really becoming shaped well now. All right, we have a view, not just on our here and now, but we have a view on what is to come also. And our life now anticipates that and stands firm in anticipation of that. And then we have this front wall, which was called a godliness. How do you know godliness is working and I love how Peter finished this off last week. I would say it's because it leads to a life of dunamis, a, a, a dynamic power that makes our claims of faith undeniable to those around us. And this is because there's a likeness and there's a drivenness that is unmistakable. We become more and more like our Father. I would also suggest that godliness is the time where we really notice this journey of personal transformation too. Where you come to this realization that you're no longer who you once were. There's tangible change and power going on in our discipleship journey at this point when we get to this godliness stage. As we explore Peter's thinking, the roof of this project can be told this way. To godliness, add brotherly kindness. I've got a few of these, but I'm only going to do one today for time. Kids can help me do the rest later. <laughs> to godliness, add brotherly kindness, add brotherly affection. This idea of brotherly kindness appears in a few instances in the New Testament. We're going to look at two today. Romans 12 and 1 Thessalonians 4 will be the passages we explore shortly. The word Peter is using here is referring to warmth and deep regard, usually reserved for family or for those closely adopted into one. I would describe it as profoundly deeper even than the Aussie concept of mateship. And definitely more sacred and far greater than mere acquaintanceship, if that's ever such a word. This idea comes from the root word for love, which we know as phileo, not quite the pinnacle of agape that we'll explore next month, but still speaking of the deeper sense of fondness for a person here. And as I've just pointed out, Paul gives us a couple of detailed spots in Scripture where this idea is in play. And, and so I'm just going to go through a bit of uh, Bible with us. So Romans 12, 11, oh, sorry, 10 to 16 first up. And uh, we'll just look at this one and just read this together. Oh, wow, the PowerPoint's working. 
Awesome. All right. Here it is. Be devoted to one another in love. That is the same concept of brotherly affection in play here. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited or do not think yourself superior. Let's go over to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now about your love for one another, same idea in play there. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your own hands, just as we told you. So that your daily life, that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Peter is presenting brotherly love or brotherly kindness as a key part of our discipleship process. And it naturally flows out of godliness. It latches onto this idea of our devotion progressing from an internal private thing to a more external expression. And it projects this outward expression of our faith into a community of others who are endeavouring to do the same thing. For the disciple who dares to grow in such things, brotherly kindness breaks down a toxic element that is actually quite prevalent in the Western Christian expression. If Peter's list stops at godliness, our Christianity remains as an individualistic thing. But this next step anticipates and assumes a way of Christian life that is done with others. We suddenly realize through brotherly kindness, through brotherly affection, that Christianity becomes a team sport. See, I honestly believe this, that Western, there's, a, there's a Western individualistic faith out there that chooses not to connect in community it's quite prevalent in the West, not so in the East. And this is a toxic form of Christianity when we won't connect like that. To sit in living rooms with just the internet preacher as our friend, believing we don't need fellowship or deep connection with other believers, is actually a stunted discipleship process if we take Peter at his word here. We could say that we could accomplish a degree of godliness but I would suggest it will be a form and not power version that we're warned against if it doesn't have an outlet among other believers. Among other believers, our godliness gets proven and tested and actually has an outlet to make our expression something of, of value to others. We actually need each other 
And this step in Peter's discipleship outline leads us to that very outcome. With all these other virtues happening in increasing measure, brotherly kindness puts legs and an outward expression on our discipleship journey. All this builds us up individually, but suddenly we take this into a community setting. It seems that Paul concurs, given what he's written about it also. Through brotherly kindness, it's the same word used in all three passages, Peter's stuff and both Paul's passages here. Paul envisages believers operating in deep and profound community. In Romans, he sees a community of brotherly affection that honors others and esteems others above themselves. What I want matters less than what other people need. He sees a well-insulated community with zeal, service, joy, patience, faithfulness, and evidence of the fire of the Spirit all contained within. This is especially true in Thessalonians where he writes that the Spirit actually taught them to love, to love each other. They were doing it for themselves. They didn't need Paul to teach them that. This leads me to believe that, Paul, that God's grace is all over this part of our growth also. This, God's grace enables us to go into this brotherly affection just as much as he builds us up in all these other things. Even in extending love and affection to brothers in the faith, in community, the Spirit is present. This is still not a case of merely trying harder. When it comes to consistently loving others, trying harder will always fail. But the Spirit is the insulator of this part of us. Paul sees a community marked by hospitality and generosity. This one's a biggie for me personally. Jesus teaches the analogy of a wedding banquet as one way of describing readiness for his imminent and unknown return. I have no clue if there's an actual table and a feast waiting for us in eternity, right? But I do see tones of hospitality in the way Jesus speaks of our eternal hope as well as his relationship with us now. As a result, this has found its way into my own theology of church and even theology of the end. I like to major in hospitality and deeper relationships now because I anticipate something like that in the kingdom. That might explain my obsession with a good morning tea after lunch, after church. Good morning tea after lunch too. Yeah, I'll do that. I'm being, I'm being okay with a messy foyer afterwards and that sort of stuff. It's doing life and making a mess together is part of it. It's awesome. In Scripture, there's a sacredness to the Christian's shared table. Jesus did some of his best work and taught some of his best material around a meal table. Unfortunately, too many Christians miss this sacred part because they don't want to get too close with others. Some of that is through experience. I respect that. 
Some of that is, I've been burnt. I respect that. But after the burning comes the healing and hopefully the faith to reach out again and go down that way because although people are fallible, Jesus is not. And his community can hold strong if we allow it to. Sometimes we can all be all about learning names but not getting anywhere near learning people's stories. But brotherly kindness takes us to a place where the guard drops and things get real. Been a bit of online to and fro about the word real in recent times with us because our men's ministry is titled Real Men and, and this implication that if you're not, you're not a real man if you don't come to the pub, that's the wrong implication there. Real is an acronym, it actually stands for something. But this journey of getting real together in community is a thing in discipleship. Paul speaks of a community that both rejoices and mourns together. This is the ability to get close and to stay in the uncomfortable moments at times without trying to fix it or make it better. And to be as present in those times as much as we are in the celebratory times also. Paul sees brotherly kindness drawing out a sense of true harmony and equality among each other. It rejects any sense of superiority. It calls me out of my ivory tower and off my high horse. It calls me to be willing to associate with people of low position. Can I tell you, after my time in India, I rediscovered the sacredness of that. To look upon a downtrodden person, an untouchable person in the eye. To shake their hand, to place a hand on them, even to offer prayer. To put an arm around them and tell them they have value was a truly sacred thing. And God does something amazing in that. Paul says to bestow value upon them on your heart. And as we go into Thessalonians here, it shows us that this part of our Christian development will ultimately give us missional street credibility. Street cred. Paul writes that they're already apparent, spirit-led, brotherly kindness will ultimately lead to even more respect from those outside the faith. How we treat each other will either build or detract from our street cred in the world around us. And this is actually a training run for the higher expression of love that the world is going to need from us in order to reach them, which is agape. Over the coming weeks, we're going to look deeper at some of the ways brotherly kindness manifests itself and protects us and insulates us. I've got three of those sessions. This is the first. I've got two more to go. And Tony Potts is up this month. He's got something cool to share with us as well. This morning, I'm actually going to do something really simple. I'm actually going to have a bit of a riddle to reflect on. 
Do you have a roof? And does it have a ceiling? Do you have a roof and does it have a ceiling? Is brotherly kindness present? And is it increasing? The rhetorical answer I'm looking for is, yes, I've got a roof. But no, there's no ceiling. Is there a drive within us towards growing in a community setting? Do we need to detox from individualism? If you've determined that it's present, how does it manifest itself? Is there that honor to others above ourselves? Is there service, joyfulness, and faithfulness? Is there a joy in hanging out with God's people? I haven't always smiled at that at times. I'm a very introverted person, and I've also been got my fingers burnt by being in community at times. It hasn't always been a joyful thing, but ultimately the joy comes back. Because the Spirit is present in this. Is there a fervency and a zeal in the way we pursue this virtue and protect those we share with it? Is it happening supernaturally? If we looked in the mirror and go, oh man, I guess I better try and just love these people, I've got to do it. That's the wrong approach. We can only do this. We can do... Christian living, no matter how simple it appears on paper, is only done by the grace of God. If it was easy to do it without grace, we wouldn't need Jesus. We wouldn't have needed the cross. Do we major in hospitality? I know of one church where two families lived where their back fences touched. They worked together. They served in church together. And not once ever spoke to each other over the back fence, let alone darken a doorstep. Scripturally, that's not how believers roll. Do we have an outlet that enables us to get real? Do we hide away in the hide away in the grief, or do, do we hold a stiff upper lip attitude, and, you know, that, and that prevents us getting too closely to people? Do we celebrate together often enough? If you don't know how to celebrate often enough, look at a Korean calendar. They celebrate lots. They remember lots. They, they do life and grief and hospitality and love and togetherness so well. I believe they could well be God's gift to the Western church to show us how to do it. The Eastern cultures coming to us shows us a sign of scriptural hospitality that we sometimes lose sight of in our individualistic setting. Do we extend brotherly kindness to all who simply know Christ regardless of where they come from? Do we bestow godly value on all people and regard all believers as family? 
I'll close with this. There's actually something special about family. You can be in all sorts of arguments and disagreements amongst yourselves, but the moment a threat comes to that family, everybody rallies together. You ever notice that? Notice that in the schoolyard. My best friends, my best mate and his brother, they, could, they, they, they were at a Christian school in Melbourne. They were a headache for the Christian school in Melbourne because they fought hard and often. They were, they were, they were, they were pretty crazy guys. They were awesome. They were awesome friends. But man, they could, they could be at each other's throats so much. But the minute someone wanted to pick on just one of the brothers, all arguments were set aside and they rallied together. Suspensions later for fighting, all that sort of stuff. It was all worth it because it's family. Something about family pulls us together. We've all got tales of woe about crazy relatives at the Christmas party. I've been one of those crazy guys at a Christmas party. I've met my share of quirky family members in God's kingdom community, and I've been one. So have you. But God, through his spirit, has grown me in loving these people, even despite the hurt I've copped for putting myself out there at times. Nowadays, I feel my own discipleship journey would take a step back if I lost this ability to keep loving like that. I'm getting real with you, and I hope you see yourself in that journey also. If you didn't have brotherly regard and brotherly affection in your corner, would you be less of a person for it? I imagine we would. So let us keep growing in brotherly kindness. And friends, don't ever let this roof have a ceiling. Let's pray.